The scripture from today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. The word of God speaks to us like this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. This is the word of God to us. Good morning, guys. That was fun. That was a cheerful good morning back. I wasn't expecting such participation. That's awesome. Hey, I hope you guys are doing well today. It's good to be with you. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as, uh, as one of our pastors, a uh, teaching pastor here, and it's a privilege to open God's Word with you. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Isaiah 55, where uh, the passage we just read. And if you've been with us any length of time, you know that we've been charting through the Gospel of Mark, uh, kind of chunk by chunk and passage by passage. And uh, we're going to take a break from that as we move next week into the season of Advent, uh, the weeks leading up to Christmas, uh, the season that the church historically has entered into the longing and, and waiting uh, for the arrival of Jesus. So we look back on his first coming and look forward to his second. So uh, that, that'll kick off next Sunday, but sort of as a bridge from the book of Mark where we've been uh, into Advent, we'll, we'll feast here in uh, Isaiah 55 today, and then we'll reopen the book of Mark at the first of the year, in case you were wondering if we're just going to stop doing that, right? Uh, but hey, listen, uh, you pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and then we'll jump into God's Word. Sound good? Let's do it. Hey, take a second before we jump in, just as a, in a prayerful posture here, and ask God that he would help you to hear today. Take a second and ask for the Father's help to slow down this morning. Father, your, your word says that there's not a word on our lips that you don't know. You know our rising up and our laying down. You know every thought that runs through our mind. You know every thought pattern that we're stuck in. You know the emotional, emotional ruts that we live in. And so God, I, I just ask that for all the places that we're disordered, would you bring us, would you bring us to order again around your son Jesus? And for all the places where we're fragmented, I pray that you'd bring us wholeness again by by the word of your scripture. And so Holy Spirit, would you teach us? Would you lead us to Jesus? And Father, would you be glorified in this moment? Would you be glorified in this time together? We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
<clears throat> well, years ago, I had, I had someone uh, offer this little line to me. It was a part of a larger conversation, but they offered this line to me, and it's kind of stuck with me. They said, you become like the people you eat with, right? That was, a, that was a line they said. You become like the people that you eat with. We could probably kick that around the room and decide whether or not we agree with that line, but that was what was said to me, right? And, and there are a few things that, uh, there are a few things that we all have in common in this room. Different backgrounds, different faith experiences, different uh, visions of the world, different political positions. There's, there's a few things that we have in common, right, for all of our differences. But there's even fewer things that we have in common with every person on the planet. No matter where you are, no matter where you're from, universal to all people is the love of a good meal and a celebration, right? universal to all people is love of a good meal a celebration we love a reason to celebrate and we enjoy a good meal and all the better when we can put the two together right I know around my house my wife and I have been known just to throw a party because we wanted one it's Wednesday that sounds good let's just get some people together and throw down on something right we love to celebrate we love to eat we love gathering friends um, but I think that's all of us and so think about this with me right like when someone gets married what do we do we eat there's such thing as a rehearsal dinner, right? When someone has a birthday, what do we do? Where do you want to go eat tonight? You're having a birthday. When someone is graduating, when someone gets a new job or a raise or a promotion, let's go eat. But what do we do when we go on vacations? Let's plan out our meals, right? You see where I'm going with this. When someone has a baby announcement party, there's probably some pastries involved and everyone gets sick on pink or blue cupcakes, as it were, right? When you have an especially good day, what do you do? Let's eat. When you have a particularly bad day, what do you do? Ben and Jerry's, right? We eat. This is what we do. We're people who tend to mark our lives, significant moments, for good or for bad, with family, with friends, and with food. And this is common to all of us. And, and I believe at the core of me that this is not random. This isn't an accident. This isn't something we just sort of made up. This is an instinctive thing that's hardwired into us, I would argue, by God, by our maker, so that he's teaching us something of what he's like, what he's inviting us into through these habits. One of my favorite biblical scholars, Peter Lightheart, says this. He's talking about the table, but particularly the Lord's Supper. He says, the Lord's Supper is the world in miniature. It has cosmic significance. And within it, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all history to the nature of God, the nature of man, the mystery of the world, which is Christ. It's not confined to the first day, but its power fills all seven. And though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch out to the four corners of the earth. You may not track with all that he's saying there, but he's saying there's something significant around this instinct that drives us back again to the table. And the point he's driving at is that there's a table that we're being invited to. There's a table that every one of us are being invited to. God is the host. And today what I want to try to do around this passage in Isaiah 55 is answer three questions. Who's being invited? What's being served? And what happens at this table? Who's invited? What's being served? And what happens at this table? Let's pick up in Isaiah 55. The context of where we are is right at the end of what's happening in this prophetic book of the Old Testament, this big prophetic book, one of the major prophets where there's four servant songs or four songs of the servant where Isaiah is prophesying of the Messiah to come. He's saying God is going to send a Savior. God is going to send a Christ, a Messiah, 
who's going to accomplish redemption for his people. And these four servant songs sort of capture what we're supposed to be looking for when the Messiah comes. We're coming to the end of that in the book of Isaiah in chapter 55. And Isaiah is doing this some 700 years before Jesus was born. By the time we get to this passage today, the prophet is here now saying, the work of redemption has been accomplished and applied by God's Messiah. And now, when that happens, here will be God's message to the world. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Look at it with me. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Three times in this passage, this one verse We're given a command, three times, the same command. Come, draw near, join me, come to the table. Uh, Don't stand far off. I don't have a a stiff arm against you. I'm not saying that you can come this far and no farther. I'm actually saying come join me. Come throw your elbows on the table as it were. Come, who, who's invited? He says everyone who thirsts and everyone who has no money. So who gets invited to God's table? The profile for the guest list at God's table are the thirsty and broke. That's the profile. (laughs) And I love how many times God goes out of his way, goes to lengths in scripture to sort of reverse our shame narratives, right? Because this isn't the way that we typically think. Instinctively, we would go, that's not who gets to God's table. And even if we're catechized enough, we know enough of the right answers to sort of give an answer like this. Who gets invited to God's table? We might offer an answer like thirsty and broke people. But we don't feel like that. We often feel like maybe that's true for everybody else. Maybe God's grace is for everybody else. He surely wants everyone, everyone else who's thirsty and broke, but not me. Not in my thirst. Not in my brokenness. We often see our own stories as different. Everyone else gets that kind of grace and favor from God, but but somehow it doesn't work for me. But notice, he says, come everyone. (laughs) Come everyone. And this is what classifies you to get there. This is the category, thirsty and broke. We don't typically think of ourselves this way. We want to have a much prettier picture on the outside, don't we? But we fit this profile more often than we care to admit even to ourselves. And this is the testimony of all of Scripture. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. He offers a blessing to this category of people. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like blessed are those who are starving and thirsty for something from God. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for a word from God, for the nearness of God, for the presence of God. They're hungry and thirsty to the point that they're afraid that their hunger and thirst won't be met. They're hungry and thirsty for the nearness of God in a kind of way that we're afraid that we've done too much and gone too far to have that quenched and filled. But he says, blessed are those who are actually hungry and thirsty for righteousness because you will be filled. A prerequisite. The category that gets you to God's table is hunger and thirst. And even Luke, when he picks up on the Beatitudes of Jesus, he actually offers not just the blessing but the warning. He says, actually, and woe to you who are full now. Woe to you, warning to those of you who go, I don't know that I need that. My stomach is full. My soul is full. My life is full. I'm not sure that I need a different table. I'm fine at the other tables of the world that I feast at and I sit at and that I glean from. He says, actually, woe to you who are full. 
for you're going to go hungry. There's a table that we're all being invited to, the table of the Most High God, and who gets invited are those who are thirsty and broke. I love this. And so just to make clear, to say it from a different angle, here's who this invitation goes to. This invitation goes to those who are far from God and are afraid there's no invitation left. That's who gets invited. This invitation goes to those who are honest with themselves about the ache of your soul. You know what's down there? The thing you're trying to cover over with music and podcasts and busyness on your commutes. The thing you're trying to cover over with email and productivity. The ache of your soul, what's down there. He says this invitation goes to those who are at least honest with themselves about the ache down there. To those who are afraid to even voice that ache to other people because they're afraid of what they might think or afraid to even say it out loud because that means admitting something. This invitation goes out to those who, who even don't see themselves as thirsty or broke. This invitation goes out to those of you who maybe your pride says, that's not me, I'm better than that. This is an invitation to you to drop your facade, to drop the version of yourself that you keep trying to project to others but also to yourself and to God, this is an invitation to say you don't, you don't have to pretend anymore and there's actually an invitation here to request for help to see yourself rightly. And I just wanna be clear like who this invitation doesn't go to. <laughs> this is not an invitation to the future version of yourself that's more put together. Because sometimes we think, oh yeah, well I'll get this invitation, but it's an invitation that's like post-dated to like a future version of me that's better, and so I get it now, but it's because I'm gonna pay back on the investment and improve later. No, this invitation doesn't go to the future version of you more put together. This invitation goes to the thirsty and broke version of you now. Now. It goes to that one. You see, God is teaching us something about himself. God is proclaiming something about his heart. Part of what's happening in the celebration of Advent, part of what's happening in the spoils of the redeeming work of God's Messiah is the invitation to his table where he's the host and who he wants to dine with are thirsty and broke people. That's the invitation. Now, that's who gets invited. Let's move to the second piece. What's being served? What's being served? Look back at verse one. He says, come everyone who thirsts. He says, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. He says, come buy wine and milk. So what's being served? Water, wine, and milk. It's not that at God's table there's this weird liquid diet. That's not what's happening here. What he's doing through these beverages is he's teaching through metaphor. He's using some imagery through these drinks, water, wine, and milk, refreshment, nourishment, delight. That's what's happening here. Hey, come to my table. What am I going to experience at the table? You're going to experience refreshment for a weary soul. You're going to experience nourishment, nourishment for the places of weakness and limitation and fear and anxiety and insecurity. You're gonna experience delight. I love, that, I love that this is attached here. Can I just say something out loud that we often don't, we think but we don't say? God is not a killjoy. 
He's not. Like, he's the fountainhead of all pleasure and delight. It all flows from him. He attaches wine here. He's not scared of fermented grape juice. He offers it at his table. He is the fountainhead of all pleasure. He's not opposed to pleasure. What God is opposed to is abuses of those things, but not pleasure itself. He's the fountainhead of it. He says, come to my table. I'm serving refreshment, nourishment, and delight. Come to me, all you who are parched and weary in this world. Come to me, all you who are spending like crazy and trying to grasp fulfillment through experiences and relationships and your career and a thousand other things, but it's left you broke and coming up dry. Notice what he says in verse two. He says, hey, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for all the things? Why do you spin your wheels like crazy for all the things that don't actually satisfy as though if I have more of it, I'll actually get satisfied. What I love about this question is that God loves you too much to have you at his table, but then to let you leave unchanged. The invitation to God's table means, notice this, it means that he's going to ask you the uncomfortable questions because he really loves you and he wants to meet you there. And so he asks this question. Hey, why do you keep spending your money for the stuff that can't actually nourish you? And why do you keep working so hard for the things that don't actually satisfy you? You see, he's asking this investigative question. What he's trying to do, I'm bringing you to the table, and I'm not just going to feed you and eat silently and like have the screeching noise of you know, my silverware against the porcelain, and we're going to eat in silence. No, he's serving up some things, and he invites us to a conversation, doesn't he? He's asking this investigative question, and what he's, what he's trying to do is get under there. Maybe to reframe the question, what's your greatest anxiety right now? What's your greatest anxiety? Where in your life are you working so hard to get noticed and have the approval of others, and you feel like if you can just have that, then you've got it? Why are you working so hard to get noticed and have the approval of others? Where's the place in your life where you're just trying to numb out and cope? And how's that going for you? Hey, what are you afraid of right now? Like, what is, this, what is the thing that you're afraid of that you don't even want to admit to yourself? What are you afraid of right now? And what does the self-talk look like? What are you trying to say to yourself to convince yourself that it's going to be okay? What is that narrative? You see, here's what the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet before Isaiah, he's going to say. He, the reason God's asking these questions is this. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've turned away from me. They've turned away from the fountain of living waters. They've turned away from refreshment. Instead, what they've done is they've hewed out, they've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. 
God's saying that the great evils that you and I have committed are two. We've turned away from him for something else, and what we've done in turning away from him is we've dug out a life for ourselves as though it can hold us and hold our hearts content, despite the fact that what we've tried to build for ourselves can't hold it, and we keep grasping and groping, thinking that what we need is more of the stuff that we're already chasing instead of turning back to him. C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, talks of it like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Your problem is not that you have strong desires. Your problem is that your desires are actually a bit too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so where in your life are you far too easily pleased with something less than the presence of the living God? Man, me too. Me too. The way I tried to reframe this question as I was processing it myself as I sat over this text, where am I settling for religious belief without religious affections? Where in your life do you know all the right answers, believe all the right things, but you feel none of it, and you're motivated by none of it, and you're indifferent to it? Where have I settled for religious forms with a dead heart, right? With a dead heart. So what should we do, right? Like we're going, okay, I'm there at the table. God asks me these awkward questions at his table about trying to get underneath there, so what do I do? Look back at the passage, verses two and three, and catch the repetition here. He says, eat, uh, he says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in the rich food. Incline your ear. Come near to me. Hear that your soul may live. Three different times he's saying, I want you to feast at my table. And the way that you're going to feast at my table is by listening to me. He says, listen diligently. Incline your ear. Hear that your soul might live. Isn't it often the case that when you find yourself indifferent to God, when you find yourself stagnant in your affections for God, when you find yourself um, indifferent, stagnant, maybe even like at a place of thoughtlessness about God, that right next to that is a neglect of his word. Next to thoughtlessness, next to indifference, and next to stagnation, is a neglect of God's word. This is why he says, listen, incline your ear. I want you to feast on my voice. You know, the, you know the, um, the parable, the teaching that Jesus gives? It's a really famous one where there's these two guys who build a house, one on the rock and one on the sand. We, all, we know the teaching, right? The one on the rock does it right, the one on the sand, the winds come, the floods break, and the house breaks down. We know, we know the parable, but you know what comes right before the parable? Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? (laughs) Why do you go on calling me Lord, but you neglect my voice? Why do you call me Lord, but you have no regard for the thing? You just want to know what I say, but you don't want to do what I say. Why do you keep calling me Lord as though you do what I say, but you don't do what I say? That's what he's getting at there. 
This is why God says, come to my table. I've got refreshment, I've got nourishment, I've got delight, but I want you to listen. I want you to lean in. And notice that this invitation isn't about getting lectured by God the Father. It's not like sitting there, it's like, okay, God the Father has got a lecture for me. Listen to it, I'll live. It's not that. Listening to him isn't about getting a lecture. Listening to him isn't about receiving this never-ending homework assignment of reading the Bible for the rest of your life. So it's not a lecture. Listening to him isn't about a never-ending reading assignment. Listening to him is about coming to this table to hear a voice that can actually cut through the noise of the thousand other voices that are coming at you all the time that are feeding you nonsense and leading you to anxiety and insecurity and false narratives. This voice can at least cut through the noise and lead you to shalom, to rest. It's the voice of peace voice of reasonableness, the voice of truth. Feelings come and go. They rise and fall, but this word remains forever. You see it. So he says, it's the thirsty and broke that get invited. Here's what I'm serving, nourishment, refreshment, and delight. But here's the last piece we'll land with today. What happens at this table? (laughs) So what happens? I've mentioned before that one of my favorite things to do in our church is to get to sit in living rooms with our community groups. And often, like, I'll get invited, and one of the questions that gets thrown out, like, how do I study my Bible? How do I read my Bible? And my response to that question is typically, like, what keeps you from the Scriptures? You're asking the question, how do I study it? But, like, I'm, I want to ask first, like, what, what keeps you from God's Word? And then after we get by the surface-level answers of, like, I'm too busy and not enough time, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what really keeps you from God's Word? Like, what's down there? And someone typically will speak up and just be honest and say, shame. Shame keeps me from God's word. And someone will say, I I don't read the Bible because I'm not sure I'll understand it. So I just, hey, that's an honest answer. I'm super grateful for that. Like, we we can process that. And I'm like, what else is down there? What else is down there? And then someone will speak up, and I I love this one. They'll they'll say, I'm afraid of what God's going to say. I'm afraid of what he might say, so I would just rather not, not avail myself to it. Me too. What else is down there? What else is down there? And I, this is probably the, the most honest and the one that I actually resonate with the most. It's like, hey, the reason that I avoid the voice of God is because I'm, I'm afraid it's not going to have anything to say that's relevant to my life. That it's just about things that are nice and wonderful, but not about the real anxieties and insecurities that I have. But I want you to notice in this passage, what happens at this table? When God opens his mouth, he doesn't speak in terms of judgment. So I I don't open his word, I don't incline myself to his voice, I don't hear diligently because I'm afraid of what he might say, but I want you to notice what he actually does say, and he doesn't speak in terms of judgment, he speaks in terms of covenant. So you don't have to be afraid of what he's going to say. Dismantle that fear, drop that gun. Notice what he says in Isaiah 55 verse 3. He says, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast love My steadfast, my sure love for David. Notice here, God initiates. It's not like we're at his table bartering with him or begging him to make promises to us. Can you promise to be kind to me, God? Can you 
He initiates. I will make the covenant. I'll initiate the covenant. In fact, I'll start the conversation. The only thing that you and I bring to this table is thirst and an empty wallet before him. That's all we bring. We don't don't bring anything else. We're thirsty and broke. That's what got us here. We have nothing to offer. God says, that's fine. Let me offer everything. I'll even initiate the covenant with you. I'll initiate promises with you. And notice he says, it's an everlasting covenant. Let's hang here for a second. Exchange the word everlasting with unconditional. It's synonymous. And unconditional promises to you. If you've been around church any length of time, you've heard of unconditional love. We can throw that around and talk about God's love like that, but we don't know what to do with unconditional love because no other love works like that, does it? And so we hear that and we go, yeah, that sounds nice, but here's how it really works. God makes a lot of promises, but he's also got a lot of commands. And if you want his promises, you better get busy keeping his commands. What God's really concerned about is if you can keep up with his expectations, and if you can, then you get his love. And so we we make less of his love for an emphasis of his commands, as though that's what God really wants. But there's other people who go, no, 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 no. I'm gonna emphasize his love for the neglect of his commands. Sure, God has commands. Sure, God wants you to live a certain way. Sure, God has some judgments out there, but they don't really matter because he has unconditional love. And so we sacrifice his holiness for his love on the one side, and we sacrifice his love for his holiness on the other side. So which is it? How, how does God make covenant How does God make everlasting covenant with thirsty and broke people that all we've ever done is break covenant? (laughs) That seems crazy, doesn't it? I'm gonna make everlasting covenant with someone who brings nothing to my table and all you're gonna do is keep breaking the covenant, which is what you've done, which is what got you to my table. How does he do it? This is what Jesus is all about. Jesus is the only covenant keeper. He's the only covenant keeper. And what happens at the cross is the only covenant keeper takes on himself all of the judgments for breaking the covenant fall on Jesus so that for covenant breakers like you and I, if we fall on Jesus, all of the blessings of God's promises fall on us. Because notice what he says in the passage in verse one. We pass this over so I can get to it here. He says, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. That's a strange line. If I have no money, how can I buy anything? Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. That's a strange line. How can I buy if it doesn't have a price and I have no money? Sounds expensive. That's because it is expensive. And someone else paid the price. And someone else paid the price. This is what Isaiah 53, the preceding passage, is all about. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, for our covenant breaking. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We were all like sheep. We went astray. Each turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. A covenant keeper in the place of covenant breakers so that covenant breakers could receive the blessing of a covenant keeper. And so we're about to go into Thanksgiving and you're going to sit at a table. And some of you are like, I'm not looking forward to that table. (laughs) I'm not looking forward to who I'm going to sit around that table with. Some of you are greatly looking forward to that table. 
For some of you, the table that you'll sit at this week will be missing a member of the family that was there last year. Or you'll remember a member of the family that was lost around this time. What's amazing about this table that God invites us to is that when we sit here, it forms us for the way that we sit at any other table. This table forms the way that we approach every other table. So you don't show up to the table with bravado and arrogance because what brought you to the table of God was thirst and brokenness. Nothing to brag about there. And you also don't show up to the table with sadness and fear because at this same table, God affirmed you and made everlasting covenant with you. If God is for you, then who can be against you? And so when you sit at the table with your family or whoever else, this table forms that table because you don't have to win the argument. You don't have to start an argument. You don't have to divide over politics because no one votes for Jesus and he's the king. And so I'll defer and give peaceful presence. I'll absorb the nonsense of the crazy uncle because God offers grace in response to my nonsense too. You don't have anything to prove at the table you'll sit at this week. I have to rehearse that truth to myself. You don't have anything to prove at the table you'll sit at this week because this table has offered a better voice. I'll make everlasting covenant with you. And there's nothing we prove there. And this table reminds you that if you're sitting at a table this week and there's sorrow and mourning, this table reminds you that you'll be comforted. That doesn't mean it'll all go away, but it does mean that one day death will be swallowed and there's only life left. This table forms every other table. And so I really do agree with the person who said to me one day, you become like the people you eat with. Because the more you come back to this table, the more you're formed by it. And God won't let you walk away unchanged. He offers refreshment for a part soul. He offers nourishment for your insecurities and your weakness. And he offers delight for a soul that's trying to be satisfied everywhere else. And he says, I'm the fountainhead. Let's drink. Come to this table, everyone who thirsts, everyone who has no money, come buy and eat. Come to the waters, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to actually come? Not, not just... Uh, not just know about your table, not just have like heard something about a sentimental table of God, but actually like would you help us to follow through and be present with you? Would you help us to receive your invitation? This week, would you help us to be inclined to your word for all the places we've neglected your scriptures, for all the places we've neglected your voice, would you help us to turn again? 
And God, thank you that we don't have to be afraid of what you're going to (laughs) say. You've already said it, and you don't speak in terms of judgment. You speak in terms of covenant. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Good King, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.